Section 27 Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Madame Augustus Cravan, Pauline de la Ferronnay, 1820-1891. Madame Cravan has told the story of her home life in Récit d'une sœur, Souvenir de Famille, the story of a sister. She has given a charming, idyllic picture of a Catholic French family, cultivated, simple-minded, and loving, and all animated by religious fervor. She has depicted with the strength of a personal experience the hopes and fears of those who see their dearest friends dying of consumption. She loves to show the gradual renunciation of life the ennobling influence of sorrow, the triumph of faith over death and bereavement. Her affectionate nature, full of admiring enthusiasm for those she loved, led her to idealize real people as the characters of her books. She was born at Paris, but had early advantages of travel unusual for a French girl. Her father was ambassador to Berlin. The family were in Italy for a time and after her marriage with Augustus Cravan, she lived a great deal in his native England. So the titles of her books reflect a certain cosmopolitan spirit. She was interested in English politics, and wrote a number of sketches on the subject. The lives of devout Catholic friends appealed to her strongly, and she wrote that of Sister Nathalie Narishkin of the charity St. Vincent de Paul, which was cordially endorsed by Cardinal Newman, and that of Lady Georgiana Fullerton. Her reminiscences, recollections of England and Italy, show the same keenly sympathetic power of observation. She also translated from the Italian. But her most popular work has been stories, the story of a sister, 1866, a collection of memoirs, was enthusiastically admired by Catholic readers, and, translated into English, was widely read in England and America. It was followed by several novels, of which the most popular have been Anne Severine, Le Mot de l'Enigme, The Veil Withdrawn, and Florange. These have all been translated into English, and the last especially has continued in favor for twenty years. Here, as in her other books, the author's strongest desire is to bear witness to the helpful discipline of trouble and the satisfactions of religion. She treats simple problems of love and duty, depicts primitive emotion, and deals very little in the complex psychology of later fiction. In a strong, fluent, fervid style, she demonstrates that religious ecstasy is the most perfect of all joy, and that in Catholicism alone all difficulties may find solution. Selection Albert's Last Days by Madame Augustus Crevin From A Sister's Story One of these latter days, 
Albert suddenly threw his arm round me and exclaimed, "'I am going to die, and we might have been so happy!' Oh, my God! I felt then as if my heart would really break. June 26th. Before Mass, which was again said at twelve o'clock at night in his room, Albert looked at me a long time, and then said with deep feeling, God bless you. Then he made the sign of the cross on my forehead, and added, And God bless your mother, too. After a while he said, Goodbye. I seemed surprised, and perhaps frightened and then he said good-night as if to change the sad meaning of the word he had used and all the while i wished so much to speak openly to him of his death it was i perhaps who prevented it by my fear of exciting him during that last mass every time that i looked at him he made me a sign to look at the altar the window was open but the night was quite dark at the moment of communion the abbe martin de noirlot and albert's father who was serving mass came up to him the abbe gave one half of the sacred host to him and the other to me even in this solemn moment there was something very sweet to me in this albert could not open his lips without much suffering it was for this reason that the abbe martin had divided the host but even so he had some difficulty in swallowing, and they were obliged to give him some water. This disturbed him, but the Abbe Gerbet, who was present, assured him it did not signify. Then Albert exclaimed, My God, thy will be done! Oh, my God, this thanksgiving of his must, I think, have been pleasing to thee. Before Mass, he had said to the Abbe Martin, who was speaking to him of his sufferings, the only thing i ask of god now is strength to fulfil my sacrifice you are nailed to the cross with our lord jesus christ the abbe said and albert answered in a very sweet and humble way ah but i am such a miserable sinner the altar had a blue silk frontal and was dressed with flowers it was eugenie who had arranged it the blue silk was one of my trousseau dresses that had never been made up and now was applied to this use june twenty seventh albert was light-headed was continually talking of going into the country and pointing to me cried she is coming with me she is coming with me i was in the habit of writing down every word he said on these latter days of his life and these words she is coming with me were the last I wrote. After dinner that same day, we were sitting by his side, without speaking. Eugenie bent over him and gently suggested his receiving extreme unction. His countenance did not change in the least. He said gently and quite quietly, Will it not be taking advantage of the graces the Church bestows to receive it yet? He was anointed, however, that same evening and during the whole time I was standing near him, with my hand on his right shoulder. Eugenie was on the other side of me. An explanation of this sacrament, which we had read together in our happy days, made me understand all that was going on. The thought flashed through me with a wild feeling of grief. What, must his soul be purified even of its ardent love for me? Must that too be destroyed? but I did not shed a single tear. His own wonderful calm was so holy. When it was over, 
Albert made a little sign of the cross on the Abbe Dupanloup's forehead, who received it with respect and affectionately embraced him. Then I approached, feeling that it was my turn to receive that dear sign of the cross, which was a sweet habit of happier days. He kissed me, his parents, Eugenie, Fernand, Montal, and then Julian, his servant, who was weeping bitterly. When it came to that, Albert burst into tears, and that was more than I could bear, but he quickly recovered fortitude when I kissed him again, and beckoned to the sister, whom he would not leave out in this tender and general leave-taking, but with his delicate sense of what was befitting, and, in token of gratitude, he kissed the hand which had ministered to him in spite of her resistance. Monsieur l'abbé Dupanloup, who gave him extreme unction, had prepared him for his first communion, and never forgot the edification it had given him at that time, to find Albert on his knees praying in the same place where he had left him three hours before, in the church of Saint-Sulpice, that church in which his beloved remains were so soon to be deposited. I sat down by his side. He was asleep, and I held his hand in mine, while Eugenie was writing the following lines to Pauline. O oh, Pauline, what a night has this been, and yet not terrible! No, a most blessed night! Albert has just received extreme unction. What wonderful graces God bestows! But why were you not here? to receive that dear angel's blessing, who, fitter for heaven than ourselves, is going before us there. After relating all that has been mentioned, she adds, Pauline, I could not have conceived anything more touching, more holy, more soothing, or a more heavenly peace. I bless God that nothing in all this time has troubled my notions of happiness in death. Alexandrine to the Abbe Gerbet the same day. I should feel it a great mercy if you could come, but I am, however, perfectly composed. I entreat you, continue your prayers for me, for I can no longer pray for myself. I can only think of God, and remind him that I asked for faith in exchange for happiness. Alexandrine. Alexandrine's Journal, June 28th. Tonight I called Albert's attention to the rising moon. I thought it had the lurid aspect which once before I saw at Rome, when I thought he was dying at Civita Vecchia. The window was open, we looked on the fine trees of the Luxembourg, and the perfume of the honeysuckles and many flowers was sometimes almost too powerful on the night air. Montal came in later and brought me Albert's letters to him, which I had asked for. It was as if a dagger had been driven into my heart. Still, I immediately began to read those pages, which, though heart-rending, were very sweet. The Abbe Martin gave Albert absolution and the plenary indulgence for the night. I was kneeling by his side, and said to him afterwards, Do kiss me. He raised his feeble head, put up his lips, and kissed me. Then I asked him to let me kiss his eyes. He shut them in token of assent. Later still, feeling unable any longer to forbear pouring my whole heart into his, and longing to take advantage of the few moments yet remaining to us of life, I said to him, Albert, Montal has brought me your letters. They comfort me very much. 
Stop, he cried feebly, stop. I cannot bear it. It troubles me. Oh, Albert, I worship you. The cry burst forth in the anguish of not being able to speak to him, for the fear of troubling his soul forced me to be silent. But those were the last words of my love for him that my lips ever uttered, and he heard them as he had asked, even as he lay dying. Oh, my God, whom alone I now worship, thou hast forgiven me for that rash word which I never again shall use but to thee, but which I cannot help being glad, and thou wilt pardon my weakness to have said to my poor dying love. I wanted to sit up, but from grief and want of sleep my head was confused and wandered so much that I thought I was speaking to Fernand at the window when he was not even there. Then I became afraid of losing my senses, and Eugenie forced me to lie down on the bed. I trusted more to her than anyone else to waken me in time. Already, once or twice, I had experienced that terrible feeling when roused from sleep of thinking that the dreadful moment was come. I was resolved at any cost to be there. At about three o'clock in the morning, the twenty-ninth of June, I saw Eugenie at my bedside and was terrified, but she calmed me and said that Albert had asked, Where is Alex? Do you want her? Eugenie had said. Of course I want her, he replied, and then began to wander again. I behaved as if I had lost my senses. I passed twice before Albert's bed, and then went into the next room, not the least knowing what I was about. Eugenie came in, holding clasped in her hands the crucifix indulgenced for the hour of death, which the abbé Dupanloup had lent her. She appeared then as a meek angel of death, for that crucifix was a sign that the end drew near. Albert saw it, seized it himself, kissed it fervently, and exclaimed, I thank thee, my God. After that he became quite calm. They changed his position and turned his head towards the rising sun. He had fallen into a kind of sleep, with his beloved head resting on my left arm. I was standing and afraid of slipping from my place. The sister wanted to relieve me, but Eugenie told her not to do so, and that I was glad to be there. When Albert awoke, he spoke in his usual voice and in quite a natural way to Fernand. At six o'clock he was then lying in an armchair near the window. I saw and knew that the moment was come. Then I felt so great a strength pass into me that nothing could have driven me from my place as I knelt by his side. My sister Eugenie was close to me. His father was kneeling on the other side. His poor mother stood leaning over him, the Abbe Martin by her side. Oh, my God! No one spoke except his father and each one of his words were words of blessing, the worthiest that could accompany the dying agony of a son. My child, who hast never caused us pain, the very best of sons, we bless you. Do you hear me still, my child? You are looking at your Alexandrine. His dying eyes had turned towards me, and you bless her also. The sister began to say the litany for the agonizing, and I, his wife, felt what I could never have conceived. I felt that death was blessed, and I said in my heart, Now, O Lord Jesus, he is in paradise. The Abbe Martin began to give the last absolution, and Albert's soul took flight before it was over.
Selection A Generous Enemy by Madame Augustus Cravin From Florange by permission of American Publishers Corporation A Generous Enemy As the silence lengthened and she looked at Vera with ever-increasing surprise, a sudden apprehension seized her and a fugitive and remote glimpse of the truth crossed her mind nothing in the world was more vague than her recollection of the name murmured a single time in her presence but that once was in a conversation of which count george was the subject and she remembered that she had then believed that they were talking of a marriage desired by the princess for her son was it regretfully now that Vera brought to another this permission to accompany him? Such was the question that Florange asked herself. Then, approaching Vera, she said to her gently, If you have been entrusted with a message for me, mademoiselle, how can I thank you sufficiently for having taken the trouble to bring it to me yourself? But Vera hastily withdrew her hand, retreating a few steps as she did so then as if she were a prey to some emotion which she could not conquer she fell back in an armchair placed near the table and for some minutes remained pale panting for breath her expression gloomy and wild from time to time brushing away fiercely the tears that in spite of all her efforts escaped from her eyelids florange motionless with surprise looked at her with mingled terror and interest but soon the frank decision of her character conquered her timidity she went straight to the point countess vera she said if i have not conjectured rightly the motive which brings you here tell me the truth there is going on between us at this moment something which i do not understand be sincere i will be so too let us not remain like this toward one another above all do not look at me as if I were not only a stranger, but an enemy. At this word, Vera raised her head. Enemies, she repeated. Well, it is true, at this moment we are so. What did she mean to say? Florange folded her arms and looked at her attentively, seeking to find an explanation to this enigma of her words to the still more obscure enigma of her face, which expressed by turns the most conflicting sentiments, to the enigma of her eyes, which now regarded her with hate, now with the gentleness and almost the humility of a suppliant. At last Vera seemed to decide to go on. Yes, you are right, she said. I must put an end to your suspense and explain to you my strange conduct, but I need courage to do it and to come here as i have done to address myself to you as i am about to do there must have been without my knowing why well florange said with a smile what else there must have been in my heart a secret instinct which assured me that you were good and generous this conclusion after this beginning did not clear up the situation on the contrary rendered it more involved than ever this is enough by way of introduction, Florange said, with a certain tone of firmness. Speak clearly, Countess Vera. Tell me all without reserve. You may believe me when I beseech you to have no fear. Though your words were to do me a harm which at this moment I can neither foresee nor comprehend, speak. I require it of you. Hesitate no longer. Well then, here, 
said vera throwing suddenly upon the table a paper which till then she had held concealed florange took it looked at it and at first blushed then she grew pale my petition she said you bring it back to me it has been refused then no it has not been sent you mean to say that the empress after having shown so much kindness towards me has changed her mind and refused to undertake it no she has given orders to me on the contrary to send your petition and to add to it her own recommendation well i have disobeyed her orders i await the explanation which you are no doubt intending to give me go on without interrupting yourself i shall listen well then first of all answer me did you know that george von walden was the husband who was promised to me for whom my father destined me from childhood who was promised you from childhood no i did not know it but no matter go on it is true it is no matter that is not the question although i was obliged to refer to it it is no longer a question of his misfortune of his fearful sentence of that frightful siberia to which you propose to accompany him to share a fate which you can neither alleviate nor possibly endure yourself the question is now to save him from this destiny to give back to him life honor liberty all that he has lost his estates his fortune his rank all may yet be restored to him this is what i have come to tell you and to ask you to aid in its accomplishment all this can be restored to him said florange in an altered voice by what means by whose power that of the emperor invoked and of his clemency obtained through my entreaties but upon two conditions one of which is imposed upon george the other of which depends upon me to these two conditions is joined a third and that one rests with you with you only the great eyes of florange were fixed upon vera with an expression of profound astonishment mingled with anguish finish i implore you she said finish if you are not dreaming and saying such words to me or i in hearing them if we are not both mad you and i vera clasped her hands together and cried passionately oh i beseech you have mercy upon him she stopped suffocated by her emotion florange continued to look at her with the same expression and without speaking made a sign to her to go on she seemed to concentrate her attention to understand the words that were said to her i am listening she said at last i am listening quietly and attentively speak to me with the same composure vera resumed in a calmer tone this morning at the moment when i had just read your petition and learned for the first time who the exile was whom you desired to follow at this very moment the emperor arrived at the palace and sent for me the emperor said florange with surprise yes and do you know what he wished to say to me you do not guess what it was and i can understand readily why you should not for you do not know with what ardour i have solicited pardon for georges how eagerly i have brought together to this end all the facts in the case which might disarm his sovereign's anger against him 
what the emperor wished to say was this that he deigned to grant me this favour to grant it to me florange do you understand but on two conditions his pardon cried florange go on i am listening the first that he should pass four years on his estates in livonia without stirring thence vera ceased suddenly florange looked up and the second she said then said vera slowly and speaking with difficulty that the wish of my father and of his should be fulfilled before his departure florange shuddered an icy chill crept towards her heart and her head grew dizzy she remained perfectly motionless however his pardon is upon that condition she said yes the emperor has taken an interest in me from my childhood he loved my father and it has pleased him to attach this act of clemency to this fulfilment of my father's wish there was a long silence vera trembled herself as she saw the pale lips and colourless cheeks of florange and her eyes gazing fixedly into space and he she said at last he will accept his pardon with this condition without hesitating will he not without hesitation repeated vera colouring with a new emotion that is what i cannot say this very doubt humiliates and alarms me for the emperor would regard the least hesitation as a new ingratitude and perhaps might retract this pardon but why should he hesitate said florange in a voice scarcely audible florange said vera in the same passionate tone she had used more than once during this interview let us break each other's heart if we must but let us go to the very end of this it has been permitted you to see georges since you have been here no but he is expecting you he knows that you have come and what devotion has brought you to him no he knows nothing of it as yet and is not to know until to-morrow a flash of joy shone in the black eyes of vera then it rests with you that he does not hesitate that he is saved yes florange let him never know that you are here let him never see you never again she added looking at her with a jealous terror that she could not conceal and life will once more become for him beautiful brilliant happy what it was what it ought always to be and the memory of these few months will fade away like a dream like a dream florange repeated mechanically these two words passing her hand across her forehead as she spoke i have not told you all vera said i have done you an injury that i understand better than any other person can but she continued in a tone which went to the very depths of her listener's heart i wished to save georges i desired him to be restored to me and i have believed i know not why for it seems most unreasonable and i am ordinarily distrustful yes i have believed that you would be willing to aid me against yourself florange her hands clasped and resting upon her knees her eyes gazing steadfastly before her had seemed for a few moments past not to have heard what was said she was listening but it was to that clear distinct voice that rang so true in her own soul that voice she had always so well known how to recognize and to which she had never denied obedience 
if george were free if he recovered his name his rank his former position would she not at once find herself in the same position toward him which she had formerly occupied would it not be treason to avail herself in this case of his mother's permission and that too to the detriment of her who sat there the wife chosen for him from his childhood would it not still further be a treason towards him to present herself before him as a danger as an obstacle which might perhaps at the very moment when he recovered his liberty cause him to lose it anew with that momentary favour which had restored it to him she laid her cold hand upon the hand of vera and lifted to hers her gentle and steady gaze it is enough she said in a calm voice you have done right yes i have understood be tranquil vera astonished at the look and tone gazed at her in wonder act fearlessly pursued florange act as if i were far away as if i had never come and taking the petition which lay upon the table she tore it across and threw it into the fire the paper blazed up for a few seconds then went out she watched the cinders fly up the chimney vera with an irresistible impulse seized the hand of florange and raised it to her lips then she remained silent and abashed she had come resolved to overpower her rival to convince her to struggle against her at every point if she failed in her first attempt but her victory had taken a character which she had not at all foreseen certainly it had been an easy victory and yet vera understood that it had been a cruel one she felt at this moment more pain than joy and her attitude no more expressed triumph than did that of florange expressed defeat while the one remained with drooping head and downcast eyes the other had risen to her feet a fugitive colour lingered in her cheeks the effort of the sacrifice had lighted up her face and given it unwonted brilliancy i think she said you have nothing more to say to me no for what i should like to say i cannot and i dare not vera rose and went towards the door but a recollection brought her back pardon my forgetfulness she said here is your bracelet which you dropped this morning and which i was desired to return to you at sight of the talisman florange started her unnatural colour faded she became deadly pale and as she looked at it in silence a few tears the only ones which she had shed during that interview slid down her cheeks but it was only for an instant before vera could think what she was about to do florange had attached to the arm of her rival the bracelet which the latter had just restored to her this talisman was a present from the princess catherine to her son's betrothed it would bring happiness she said it is mine no longer i give it up to you it is yours florange held out her hand we shall never see each other again she said let us not remember each other with bitterness vera took the hand without looking up never had she felt herself so touched and humiliated and her very gratitude was a wound to her pride the grave and sweet voice of florange was however irresistible at this moment and spoke to her heart in spite of herself she was hesitating between these two feelings when florange resumed you are right 
it is not my place to wait for you at this moment for you have nothing now to forgive and as for me i forgive you all and while vera still stood motionless with bowed head florange bent towards her and kissed her end of section twenty seven